detailing the American effort on how the cement production and construction industry can reduce its carbon emissions and eventually reach carbon neutrality by 2050, the Portland Cement Association published its Roadmap to Carbon Neutrality. It's a free download. I'll put a link in the description. The following is part two of our conversation with Rick Bohan, Vice President of Sustainability at the Portland Cement Association, a policy, research, education, and market intelligence organization serving America's cement manufacturers. I'm Jonathan, and this is Digging Deeper, a podcast hosted by 4constructionpros.com. In part one, we left the conversation by talking about the genesis of the environmental movement. Basically, it all started back in the 1970s with the attention toward global warming just heating up. Now we have a roadmap on what we can do today to make a real impact. And since this is a worldwide effort, PCA's roadmap isn't the only one in the game. There are plans from Europe, uh, specifically Germany has released theirs, the Global Cement and Concrete Association has released theirs early October. Uh, but in this episode, uh, we're starting to get into further detail about the PCA's roadmap and start to draw a better picture of what levers we all can pull. So in the, in the PCA roadmap, are there like goals set between now and 2050, like um, this done by this year? Absolutely. So each one of the, um, each one of the steps in the value chain, clinker, cement, concrete construction, using concrete as a carbon sink, each one of those has targets for 2030, 2040, and of course by 2050. So for example, one of the, a couple I'll throw out, we'd like to increase almost double the use of decarbonated raw materials at a cement plant. Why? Because that, that goes to a direct reduction of the amount of CO2 released from that chemical fact of life. Today, we're uh, just under 5%. By 2050, we want to get to 10%. Now there's a limit because there's a, an availability issue of those materials, but that's one example. Um, reducing the clinker to cement ratio in our cements, um, increasing the use of alternative fuels. So we've got a number of graphics throughout our roadmap that shows what each of these levers can bring to the table. And our goal is to, to report on the roadmap and the progress with each one of those. I envision that, you know, some years are going to be better than others. And we may see where some levers have more impact than others. But on the whole, we've got these targets aligned and we're really excited about it. And of course, the end goal, carbon neutrality by 2050. But uh, look, I'm really optimistic. I think we can do it sooner. Yeah, I like the picture of these being levers that we have to reach up and pull down because that's not going to switch on its own. So no, and you know, and this really goes to the point about the using the entire value chain. There's a lot of focus right now in cement and concrete, but you know, e even if you even if you ratchet down the CO two with cement and concrete, 
you still have the issue of construction itself and how can you how can you you know lower the embodied carbon of the construction process itself and one of the really exciting things about the roadmap there are metrics that we're going to have to develop so things like well how do you measure the co2 footprint of the construction process and we're really excited to be engaged with some of the largest contractors in the world to start to define metrics for that so that we can actually measure it. Because if we can't measure it, then it really isn't, you know, we're really not holding ourselves accountable. And we're really big on making sure that number one, we're completely transparent with the roadmap, transparent with our targets, our timelines, the technologies, our policies. And number two, accountable. It's not enough to have the roadmap. We have to show how we are progressing with the roadmap. So we're really proud that we are taking the lead on that as an industry. Yeah, I, I think you, you're touching into my next question of how this was all going to be tracked because decreasing by 5%, decreasing by 10%, um, that's all kind of after the fact, like uh, a year of this and we collected all this data. Um, how can we track this going forward? And it looks, it sounds like you're already working on something. Oh, yeah. To... Yeah. So one of the, th so we already have really solid data in particular on the clinker side and the cement side of things. We've been tracking data through our market intelligence group for decades. I mean, literally back through the 1970s. The U.S. Geologic Survey, they track cement shipments, so we know how much cement is shipped throughout the United States, and for that matter, how much is imported and exported. On the cement side, we're really solid with those numbers. Same with the clinker side for the, uh, for the plants. Now, we don't capture 100% of the plants because we don't have 100% of the cement companies, but we're getting really, really close. And those companies are still, even the non-members participating with the USGS. We also know because by law, our industry has to report CO2 emissions. So we also know how much CO2 we are emitting. And as a matter of fact, anyone can go to EPA's website and they can find out how much CO2 the entire cement industry is emitting plant by plant. Well, if you know that number, and you know the amount of cement that's produced, you can actually figure out what our contribution is in the US. And people are shocked when I tell them this, but I tell them, don't take my word for it. Go to the websites. The US cement industry accounts for one and a quarter percent of all CO2 equivalent emissions in the US. One and a quarter percent. Now look, I'm not trying to diminish that contribution, but when I hear people say, oh, six to eight and this and that, I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, it's not. If you want to look at the numbers, look at the numbers that, again, by law, we have to report. So it is 1.25%. 1.25% of just the U.S. Right, right. Wow. Yeah. And by the way, again, not to diminish it, our goal is to get that down. Our goal still is carbon neutrality. Whether it's 1.25% or 0.125% is not the issue. Not really. Our issue is that we have an obligation to society to address the issue of the age, global warming. We know that. 
we take it very seriously. And we are an industry that is taking the lead to do that. And I can't point to any other any other industry that has this kind of effort in place. So again, whatever the number is, our goal, 2050, carbon neutrality. Yeah. And it's not like cement industry and the concrete construction industry is doing this alone. That 1.25% is our tiny little segment, but there's the steel industry, which has its own segment. There's the supply chain industry of the trucks and the trains and the shipping internationally. All of them have effort going into reducing uh, their emissions. So this is just our part. Yeah. And and our hope is that they will look to the U.S. cement industry for a template of how you can do this. And look, we're going to be cooperating with other industries because we don't operate in a vacuum. So I think there are lessons we can learn from every other industry that's doing this. Likewise, there are lessons they can learn from the cement industry. We're excited about that. So you're saying they're looking to look to the concrete industry as to make a good foundation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and into clinker, um, there was, you mentioned that one of the goals was to use less clinker in the cement in the concrete. Um, but I also understand there is the interest in using more limestone uh, for Portland limestone cement instead of ordinary Portland cement. Uh, how much additional limestone is being added to ordinary to be created a PLC? Sure. So roughly speaking, about 10% ground limestone can be added to make a Portland limestone cement. Okay. Now, 10% is not a hard and fast number. Different plants will have um, a little bit more or a little bit less, but 10% is an, an average number. You don't want too much because then essentially you're just diluting your product, but there certainly is some benefit to using the limestone, not just from a, a CO2 footprint um, viewpoint, but also that there is some chemical interaction that you t- that takes place with that. So again, about 10%. And by the way, limestone is one of the most prevalent materials in the crust of the earth. Every cement plant essentially has a quarry filled with limestone. So they're not going to a new source. And if you think about it, the other benefit to a Portland limestone cement is that that 10% limestone means you don't have to process 10% new material. Well, not processing 10% new material means 10% less energy consumption to mine virgin materials, 10% less energy consumption to process it thermally through the cement plant, and so forth. So it's not just the CO2. I mean, there are add-on effects to using a Portland limestone cement. And here's the other thing, too, that people may forget. Concrete is 100% recyclable, right? So by crushing concrete, because sadly to say, it's not going to last forever. It'll last 100, 200 years, but at some point, you're going to probably want to reuse it. 
Well, you can reuse concrete by crushing it, pulverizing it, potentially using it as aggregate in new concrete, or potentially using it in cement plants as a raw material. There's research that we're doing right now to, to investigate how well we can do that and how, again, we can optimize that. So, and by the way, here's the other takeaway with that. When for a concrete building will absorb about 10% of the CO2 that was emitted in the manufacture and transportation of the cement and concrete that went into building it. Doesn't happen overnight. It's not over 10 months. It's not even over 10 years. It's over a long period of time. But concrete, like a live tree, will absorb CO2. And again, about 10% of the CO2 that was used to manufacture and transport the cement and concrete. When you crush a concrete building and reuse it as an aggregate, if that material is crushed and pulverized, because that absorption is a function of surface area, you actually accelerate that process a great deal so you can even get more benefit. So again, it's something that people don't don't really think about, don't realize. The science around this has been known for decades. And actually, PCA is working with IVL, the Swedish Environmental Institute, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and others. And IPCC recognizes that this is sound science and is giving us credit for this. So we're excited about that. Cool. What should contractors ask uh, their plants about, um, for all intents and purposes, blended cements uh, for PLCs? And So I, here's what I would say for a contractor. Don't ask the plant first. Go to the owner and be very intentional and say, what are you trying to do with this building? How quickly do you want it built? What is, you know, how will it be used and so forth? Sit down with the design team and become part of that team effort. And it shouldn't be just the contractor. It should be everybody coming to a consensus saying, you know what? You know, we are, I'll use a, a high rise building as an example. We don't need real high strength for these lobby columns because it won't be occupied for another eight months. So how about instead of a 28-day strength, we use a fixed 56-day strength? Okay, now you can go to the cement or the concrete supplier and say, look, I don't need strength until 56 days. What can you guys do for me? Well, he can then go to the cement supplier and say, hey, what are the options we can provide this guy? And again, make it a team effort. Too often, I think people come up with the answer that they want, and they say, okay, this is what I need. I think, it's, I think that's backwards. I think what they should do, again, be intentional about it and put the question to the entire value chain. Hey, guys, girls, how can we optimize this product? And you can't have an answer to that question without knowing how can we optimize this fill in the blank. Bridge, building, tunnel, airport runway. And you know what? If you think about it, 
a lot of this depends on, well, what are the circumstances? If I'm replacing the I-35 bridge in, in the Twin Cities, and I've got hundreds of thousands of cars that are passing over it every single day, I may not have time to use a 56-day strength. I may need an optimized structure, and I may need a higher strength concrete, but I can still do that with a lower embodied carbon, depending on what's available in my area. So again, it's a balancing act and it's an optimization act. Sure, sure. There's a concept out there, and I think a lot of European uh, plants are working on this. Uh, I can't name them because I can't pronounce them, but they're, they're, they're out there. And I think it's coming to the United States um, a, a little bit um, as far as carbon capture technologies. And then there's the idea of taking that carbon and then injecting that back into concrete to strengthen it. Um, where is the research at, in regarding to that type of concept? Sure. So there's a, a few different processes. Um, let's talk about injecting it into precast concrete because there the technology is essentially injecting it under pressure within a chamber and forcing the CO2 into the concrete, that's called carbonation. Now we've known about carbonation, I mean, literally for decades, it is sound science. The issue with carbonation is that it can be a double-edged sword. So carbonation on the one hand can provide a denser, more impermeable concrete. However, carbonation, if it reaches reinforcing steel can deteriorate the reinforcing steel. So the trade-off is to make sure that your concrete essentially uh, will outlive its useful life before the carbonation ever reaches the reinforcing steel. So that's why in the precast industry, they tend to pressurize it. Lots of research has been done on that. Again, very sound science. More recently, what we're seeing is people using CO2 and they're injecting it into fresh concrete, into ready-mix concrete. That's a relatively newer process. And um, the research on that is ongoing. So there are still questions about how much CO2 actually ends up within the concrete after it is hardened, after it is set up. How much concrete, or excuse me, how much CO2 is actually making it into through the injection system while it's, you know, um, while it's a fresh concrete. That research is ongoing. Still some answered questions there. I do think some amount of CO2 absolutely is being injected in. How much is still a kind, in, in my mind at least, is still an open question though. Sure. It sounds um, like there's a lot of effort that's being done even before the contractor gets involved yeah. uh, with the limestone at the plant. Um, and it seems like one of the key things a contractor can do is increase their efficiency. Uh, I believe you mentioned um, trucks and a few other ideas. I think um, some other conferences mentioned uh, utilizing Zoom a lot more by limiting the amount of needless travel. Um, 
the roadmap uh, envisions that construction efficiencies should increase roughly 1% per year until 2050. Are there any areas where contractors can start addressing right now? Absolutely. Look, I think contractors have such a huge role to play within this. So if you think about construction in general, you have four primary phases. You've got the design phase. Contractors should be involved in the design phase because they have the know-how about means and methods. They're the ones that can tell the architects and the engineers, hey, this can't be done. Or, hey, if you want to do it this way, this is the cost. And I don't mean cost in terms of money, but also cost in terms of time, cost in terms of carbon footprint. They have to be brought in the design phase early on. And this is where you get into issues like uh, BIM and augmented reality and workflow and processing, things of this nature. So the, the, the design phase itself. Then the construction phase. And if you think about it, if you go to a job site here in the U.S., I hate to say it, more often than not, it looks like utter pandemonium. There's chaos. Whereas if you go to job sites in some parts of Europe, you wouldn't recognize it because it is almost a sterile environment. By sterile, I don't mean so much clean, but it's orderly. They have sequenced everything out to the last you know, hour and minute of the day when things will arrive, how they arrive, how they'll be installed, who will be on site, when they're on site. I mean, they have this down like clockwork. The amount so the of meetings, dang. So in the construction phase, I think there's huge room. And by the way, I want to put this out there. You know, people say, well, you know, that sounds great, Rick, but come on. Listen, at the end of the day, for the folks that are doing that, you're going to be one of the star performers. And I'm telling you, there is a lot of money to be made by being the innovative designer, the innovative contractor. Those are the folks that are making bank. So, you know, yeah, you're reducing CO2. I get it. And that's great for the environment. But it's that, that's that profit part, too, of the, the sustainability. You're also employing people and you're giving your workforce great opportunities to be involved with a company that isn't just changing the world for the better and putting this building out there that's going to last for decades. You're also providing an economic engine. So, you know, good on you. So that's in the construction phase. In the use phase, again, concrete has such a huge role to play because we know that concrete buildings with the thermal mass, with the resiliency, with, you know, the fire resistance, the earthquake resistance, the fact that a concrete building can stay in operation 24-7 through tornado, hurricane, fire, windstorm, flood, that has a huge dividend and that cuts operating expenses for a building. And then finally, at the quote unquote end of life, and I hate that term because there's no such thing. It's not cradle to grave, it's cradle to cradle. So finally, 
using that concrete building decades from now when we're both long gone, using that for fresh concrete with, you know, by then it won't just be Portland cements, it'll be other types of cements using that for a new, you know, whether it's a George Jetson kind of building. So that's the role contractors have to play. And I, I get passionate about it because I'm so excited. And I'm also frustrated because I see so many contractors that are just kind of shaking their head and they're like, yeah, this is pie in the sky. No, this is today's technology ready for people willing to take the opportunity. Yeah, I really wish that I could be involved with the story of telling where the Empire State Building's concrete is going to go once it's recycled. Um, what highway is it going to impact? Because there should be like a sign or a plaque that like this highway was built by this building. And yeah. there's a lot of, there's to be like, a, it'll be historic. Um, yeah. And I'm betting there's a lot of buildings already that we have no idea. They're right underneath our feet. Absolutely. You know, if you think about it, we all get interested in the genealogy we have of our family history. You know what? Every building 100 years from now is going to have a genealogy. Where did that concrete come from? Where did that steel come from? I mean, all those materials are being repurposed. This is happening today. And you know what? We don't realize it because we don't, we don't tell the good part of the story, which is unfortunate. But again, that's why we've, that's one of the reasons why we've got our roadmap out there. And by the way, you know, we're very transparent about the roadmap. People can go online, they can download it, they can read it. It's right on our website. We make no bones about it. We're taking all the responses we can get from people. It's going to be a dynamic document. People are going to give us input and feedback, you know, over the next 30 years. It's not going to be stagnant. We've got to hold ourselves accountable. I see you're going to make like roadmap amendments to it. Absolutely. I think we will be revising it. It won't be daily, weekly, or monthly, but I think we're going to be taking a look probably every, every six to eight months, taking a step back and saying, okay, what have we done that's worked? What are the success stories? Where are the areas we need to focus on? And again, going back to that concrete needs society, where can we engage policymakers to help us accelerate where we're where we're not getting to the targets we need to get to? Yeah. Can you tell me about any of the policies in the works right now? Well, so we've identified 10 policies and these are big picture things. So I'll I'll just give a few examples. One, switching from prescriptive to performance-based specifications. This is huge. There's no reason why we shouldn't do this. So prescriptive specifications, it's a cookbook recipe. Add A, B, and C in these amounts. Performance specifications focus on the end performance. What do you want? I go back to that example I gave earlier. My sidewalk, I don't need it to be 10,000 PSI concrete, but I sure as heck need it to be durable so that when I put salt down, when it snows, that 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 sidewalk will have this, the uh, durability it needs, 
for the next umpteen years. So shifting from prescriptive to performance, looking at another one, looking at life cycle based procurement. People focus on EPDs. EPDs are only part of the story. If we want to talk about buy green and green procurement, you have to look at the entire life cycle. Again, think of that example of the Empire State Building being 100 years old. It's not enough to have great low carbon embodied materials. We're working on that. We have those available today. But if those are going to go into a building where we're just going to waste energy over its lifetime, then that's counterproductive. So life cycle based. We're looking at other issues like community acceptance and awareness. A couple examples. Look, at some point, we need to incorporate carbon capture. Well, what do we do with that carbon? We've got to, we've got to ship that CO2 somewhere. And if we're not next to a place where we can put it into enhanced oil recovery, that's going to require a pipeline. And oh, by the way, if we want to shift to using natural gas as a tr transitional fuel, or if we want to use hydrogen as a fuel, that requires pipeline capacity. Communities nowadays aren't too keen on pipeline construction. We've got to explain to them, look, the road to carbon neutrality is going to require investments like that. And not just pipelines, but also a robust, a reliable electric grid. A lot of areas of the country, we'd like to switch to renewable electricity. That requires added capacity. So that's something, again, community awareness and acceptance. And, you know, again, I go back to it's not a policy, but a lot of these things kind of fall under the rubric of incentivizing innovation and breaking through institutional inertia. So institutional inertia means there are institutions like the design professional community that, you know, they're, they're naturally risk averse. We're just asking them to innovate. Policymakers, look, they're naturally risk averse because they want to hang on to their jobs. <laughs> We're asking them to be more innovative. That's what breaking through institutional inertia is all about, being innovative. It's not sacrificing safety. It's not being a risk taker. It's taking technology we have on the shelf today and making it acceptable and you know, engaging with it to, to optimize things. Do you think it would help if contractors made a roadmap of their own? And if, if so, what would you suggest they start with? You know what? What I would love contractors to do is download our roadmap and put up the graphs that we have, the graphics that we have in the roadmap. Put those up in their job site trailers, in their offices, and point to them and say, hey, this is what they want to do. How can we contribute to that? And you know what? There's a role for them to play. So maybe they become more willing to accept Portland limestone cements. Maybe they become more willing to look at their workflows on the construction site. Maybe they become more willing to look at zero emission material handling equipment on the job site. 
you know, things like that. I think if they do that, if they start thinking outside the box and start really what ifing, what if we do this? What if we do that? And the one chart that I would ask them to really focus on, optimization, two points there, shifting the curve and shaping the curve. But the one I want them to focus on is shifting the curve. You have some of the most innovative contractors out there. They're the folks pushing the envelope every single day. If I was a contractor, I'd want to be one of them, right? So I'd want to be one of them as opposed to one of the slow adopters. Now, sometimes the slow adopters, it's through no fault of their own. But that's where I would say I'd want to have my company, my staff, pointing to that star performer saying, look, folks, we are going to be at the cutting edge in our company, in what we do, in how we do it, in when we do it, in where we do it. That's what I'd like them to do. Sure. You mentioned they can download it. Uh, where exactly can they find the roadmap and more information? Right. So the roadmap is at cement.org, right on our front page. Um, again, we just released it last Tuesday, and we've been pushing it out through everybody we know. Our members have been publicizing it. Um Again, we're not alone. There are other roadmaps that have come together. But if you're operating in the U.S., the roadmap you want to look at is the Portland Cement Association's Roadmap to Carbon Neutrality Using the Value Chain by 2050 at cement.org. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for speaking to me and going over the, the, the roadmap a bit. <laughs> we took like 50,000 foot view of it. <laughs> yeah, listen, I'm as you can tell, I'm passionate about it. I'm excited about it because we have a solution and I would encourage everyone listening to the podcast if you have questions, if you want to put us on the spot, if you've got input, hey, we're here and we're listening. Concrete needs society, society needs concrete. Those two things work. I'd like to thank together. Mr. Bohan so and the Portland Cement really Association again thank for you. taking the time to talk All right, with us. Take care. Tune Me in too. soon for another episode of Digging Deeper podcast by 4constructionpros.com. Make sure to subscribe and share. Until next time, stay safe out there. <laughs>